Brothers and sisters, I would uh, ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Our scripture passage this morning is brief. It's verses 23 and 24. As you're turning there, let me remind you that this is the great passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus is in Samaria. Uh, there's a woman at the well. He has this conversation with her uh, concerning um, just a, a number of things, uh, Samaritans and their concern for uh, where worship is supposed to be and Christ um, uh, setting the story straight in terms of what truly comes from God. But as he does so, he comes to this part of his discourse with her when he says these words, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray before we consider these uh, these words this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> our God and our Father, we thank you for Scripture. We thank you that you are a God who is not silent, that you have spoken to us. Your word has been inscripturated. We have your whole counsel, and for this we are grateful. And we have these words specifically from the Lord Jesus here that are very significant with respect to our lives, our calling, who we are, what we're called to be. And so we would pray this morning that you would enable us to uh, gather from these verses uh, what your spirit would teach us. And we pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts to obey and that we would conform our lives to your teaching, uh, that we might be trained in the ways that you want us to be trained to live the kind of lives that you want us to live as those who name the name of Christ. So be with us this morning. Uh, enable us, Lord, uh, to be who you want us to be and to serve you. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I want to begin this morning uh, where... Uh, normally I wouldn't begin, that is to say, I wouldn't begin with the Los Angeles Times on most occasions. <laughs> um, but it sort of caught my attention of what they had written on the 1st of January as an editorial. <clears throat> the editorial was titled this, Our Wishes for a New Year That Desperately Needs Them. And then the opening uh, paragraph goes this way. It is a sad reality that, even with vaccines, in the coming year, more of us will add to the COVID-19 death count that is approaching 350,000 in the United States, nearly the population of Bakersfield. That caught my attention. <laughs> and has surpassed 1.8 million lives globally, roughly the state of Nebraska. The economy will continue to struggle. Lies and conspiracy theories will remain a cancer in our body politic. Social inequality, the chasm between rich and poor, the inexorable rise in the costs of housing, a college education, and health care. None of that went away at midnight. But today starts a new year, which offers not only a moment for reflection on what we have endured, 
but also a chance to embrace hope for the year ahead. Here are some of our wishes for the new year in no particular order. Now, <clears throat> what the new the the LA Times wishes for during this coming year is far less important than the one truth that their opening paragraph stated. None of the world's problems, none of our own personal problems or struggles went away at midnight three days ago. So as Christians, we need to look at this coming year and remind ourselves of how we will go forward. And I think that question, that issue, always takes us back to the basics. The basic question, why has God saved us? That is, what is the essential purpose of our salvation? Or that question translates into something like this. What is the actual purpose of our lives? Because no matter what we face in this coming year, our primary purpose, the purpose for which God has saved us, redeemed us, reconciled us to himself, that purpose does not change, will not change, and cannot change. And that's why I wanted us to look at these two verses this morning. The main lesson that comes out of these two things, that these two verses that Jesus shares with the a Samaritan woman is essentially this. Since the reason that God has saved us is worship, we need to live every day for that purpose. No matter what comes in 2021, we need to live in accordance with the purpose for which Christ died for us. So in this text, where I talk about the purpose uh, the purpose for which God saved us, I want to focus upon three things. First, the truth about that purpose. Then secondly, the means to that purpose. And then thirdly, the practice of that purpose in terms of what do we really need to know. And so I want to begin very quickly here, the truth about our purpose as Christians. I think this is clearly the main idea that we find in verses 23 and 24. Uh, Jesus says in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And this phrase is the key phrase. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's a purpose statement. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. And that's the main thing that we need to think about. Jesus is speaking to the woman, speaking about salvation, and he declares to her the goal or the objective of salvation. And that goal is people worshiping the Father as true worshipers. So the very thing that Jesus is teaching is this. God seeks true worshipers as the goal of salvation. But what do we mean biblically by worship? Well, the best way to find a biblical definition is to find things defined for us by example in terms of the scriptures. That is to say, if we want to understand what worship is biblically, we need to look where worship is actually presented and explained to us scripturally. So Psalm 96, verses 7 through 9, we read these words. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. 
Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, what we notice very quickly here is the connectivity between the activity of worship and the activity of giving God glory. That tells us that the essence of worshiping God is to give God all that he is worth receiving. And his worth is, in fact, all the glory that is due to who he is. In other words, worship is accurately stating who God is, and God is himself infinitely glorious, infinitely great in all that he is. And so to worship God is to ascribe to God the glory that is due unto his name. That's what worship is all about. That's what worship is, giving God all the glory. And Jesus says that the very purpose for which he has come into the world, the very purpose of salvation, is that the Father is seeking those who are redeemed to worship him. Now, that connection between worship and salvation is something that we find the Apostle Paul uh, making in the first chapter of Ephesians. In that great passage in Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3, going all the way to verse 14, the Apostle Paul sets forth the, the sovereignty of God's saving grace in the context of salvation, and he connects this to the worship of God by connecting it to the glory of God. So verse 3 begins this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Now that phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. Salvation is to the praise of God's glorious grace. And two more times, verse 12, verse 14, the apostle will compress that phrase and say, to the praise of his glory. So the Apostle Paul teaches that salvation is to the praise of God's glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. Salvation is, is unto the worship of God. Now, this theme is so strongly presented in Scripture uh, that those godly theologians and godly scholars who came together and, and gave us the Westminster Confession of Faith began the first catechism question in this way, asking this question, what is the chief end of man? That is, what is man's chief purpose? And the answer is this, man's chief end, that is to say man's chief purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In other words, the chief purpose of each and every human being is to give God all the glory that he deserves and to do this now and forevermore, which means that God saves people so that they will enjoy worshiping him, giving him the glory now and forevermore. So the purpose that God has given to us 
is in fact the highest possible purpose that any creature could ever have. God saves us, God redeems us unto this exalted highest purpose of worshiping him. And that purpose became your purpose the moment you were spiritually reborn and when you put your faith in Christ. You might have been in college studying computer science, thinking of a career path in software engineering. But the moment that you became a Christian, God of the Father established worship as your highest purpose. God established his purpose for your life that you would be his worshiper. Now the question is this. Do we truly take this into account? When we think about ourselves, which we do constantly, does this purpose show up front and center? Does this purpose shape and control your thinking about your life? Scripture says it should. And we can add to this the testimony of the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now this phrase, to proclaim the excellencies of him, is another way of saying that we are to declare the glory of God. In other words, Peter is also saying, we have been saved to worship God. So if we're called to be worshipers and our purpose is to worship God in spirit and in truth, then we need to give this matter of worship a very serious study. We need to understand what makes up this worship. How do we do this worship? What does it look like to be and to do what Christ has saved us for. So let's consider this our starting point for 2021. Our God-given purpose must have first place in our lives. Living out the idea that we have been saved to worship God should be the prime directive that leads us and guides us every day in 2021. Now, then moving then to the second lesson and idea that we can find in what Jesus says, consider the means to that purpose. What do we have that enables us to worship God in spirit and in truth? The Father has sought us to be worshipers, to worship in both spirit and in truth. So what have we received from the Father? Well, in the first place, we have the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We have God, the Holy Spirit, who made us spiritually alive, who caused us to be born again, like Jesus said to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And so it was the spiritual rebirth that brought us into life in Christ. So we have the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in that way, but that work, person and work also continues because the Holy Spirit is the very presence of God 
with us and in us who enables us to worship. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the Holy Spirit living in us who enables us to worship God. So that's the spirit part, to worship the Father in spirit. But he also says to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, the truth part. What do we have that enables us as the means to worship? Well, we have the book of truth. We have the scriptures that enable us to worship the God. We have the whole counsel of God. We have all the truth that the Bible contains that enables us to worship God. But with respect to the whole Bible, there is one book in particular that is devoted to worship as its primary purpose. And that book is the Psalms, the songbook of God's covenant people. It is the main worship book for the people of God. And it remains the central worship book in Scripture for us, too. Paul mentions it in Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, because he says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So he, he makes it clear that the use of the psalms is still important, significant, a first place in New Covenant worship. And in a similar matter, uh, a parallel passage to the book of Colossians, Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. For these reasons, the best of the godly commentators have all agreed with Matthew Henry one of the most venerable of Bible commentaries when it comes to what he says about the Psalms. He writes, in the Psalms, we have now before us one of the choicest and most excellent parts of all the Old Testament. Nay, so much is there in it of Christ and his gospel, as well of God and his law, that it has been called the abstract or the summary of both Testaments. This book brings us into the sanctuary. It draws us off from converse with men, with politicians, philosophers, or disputers of this world, and directs us into communion with God by solacing and reposing our souls in Him, lifting up and letting out our hearts toward Him. Now, that's a great set of comments by Matthew Henry. But I note particularly that he says that in the Psalms, there is so much of Christ and the gospel, which then leads us to our third point. And that would be the practice of that purpose that God has saved us for. What should we know about the Psalms and how are we to use them and our worship of God. Now, there should be no mistake in terms of the direction that I'm going here. I am very definitely promoting the idea 
that we as Christians should be using the Psalms as our worship book. That is to say, within all of the scriptures, the Psalms in particular ought to be our personal and corporate worship book. That is to say, I'm, I'm making the strongest kind of recommendation without making it a law, without making it a command, the strongest kind of recommendation that we would be reading the Psalms as part of our daily reading pattern, that this would be part of the great wisdom of seeking to fulfill our purpose. That is, we've been saved in order to worship God. But to do so, and to do so in the best possible way, it's vital for us to think about what Matthew Henry has said about Christ and the gospel and the Psalms. That is to say, we have to grasp the relationship between the book of Psalms and Christ. To use the Psalms as our prayer book, even our psalm book, as our central worship book, as the backbone of our personal and corporate worship, we need to understand how the book of Psalms is related to Christ and how Christ is related to the book of Psalms. So remember, first of all, the Psalms do speak about Christ. Jesus told us, as he told his disciples, that this is so. In Luke 24, verse 44, on the day of his resurrection, uh, behind closed doors, meeting with his disciples, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So remember back in 2019, when we spent that year pursuing the theme of Christ in the Old Testament, we, we covered all parts of the Old Testament, but we never went as deeply as we could have with respect to the Psalms. So we need to remind ourselves of ways in which the Psalms are related to Jesus and how Jesus himself was related to the Psalms. And in this regard, there are two profound dimensions. First, with respect to Christ's deity, and then with respect to his humanity. You see, with respect to the deity of Christ, the very Psalms themselves are his work by divine inspiration. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 10 and 11, uh, Peter writes these words, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, here Peter is reminding us that the, that the very Spirit who gave us the Old Testament was the Spirit of Christ, so that Christ in and through the Holy Spirit was breathing out the Word of God breathing out the Psalms. So from the divine perspective, the Psalms are the word of Christ. And therefore, the Psalms reflect his doctrine, his teachings, his concerns for those whom he saves. But also according to his deity, the Psalms contain the prophetic witness to the coming of the Messiah, which when we read them, we can say this is Christ's own testimony to his first coming into the world. 
Then with respect to the humanity of Christ, we must never forget that when the time had fully come, Christ was born of a woman, born under the law, which is to say, we must never forget that the man Jesus was Jewish. He was raised under the law that he himself would fulfill. So the book of the Psalms was his prayer book and his song book as a Jew. And like every Jewish male, he attended the synagogue faithfully every Sabbath. And three times a year from the time he was 12 years old, he made his appearance at the temple during the times of those festivals. We know without question that Jesus had committed to his memory all 150 of the Psalms. So as a Jew, in his incarnation, in the fullness of his humanity, Jesus worshipped the Father using the book of Psalms. But we also need to remember what is unique about the humanity of Christ. Not only the sinlessness of Jesus, which is paramount, but also the calling of Jesus to be the representative and substitute of his people in his incarnation. God appointed his eternal son to be the true son that Israel failed to be. And so the Psalms sing of this truth. For Christ is the perfect Israelite as the true king, the fulfillment of the covenant with David. Psalm 2, Psalm 89. He is the true priest who is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. And he's the true prophet proclaiming the gospel of salvation to the people of God, even the true servant who comes to do the will of God written for him in the book, Psalm 40. And he's the true vine, Psalm 80 the man of God's right hand, the son of man whom God made strong for himself. Yet he's also the forsaken of God, rejected by the false leaders of Israel, the forsaken one who nevertheless lives beyond death to declare the praises of God to the great congregation. Psalm 22, because the Lord would not abandon him to Sheol, nor let his Holy One see corruption, but made known to him the path of life because he is the one resurrected from the dead. Psalm 16. So all of this in his life, ministry, teaching, death and resurrection, so that in all of this, Christ would be the good shepherd. Psalm 23. Always able to lead his people through the valley of the shadow of death. Always able to ensure for them that goodness and mercy would follow them all of the days of their lives to guarantee to them that they would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the book of Psalms, filled with the fears and failings of the people of God, their woes, their constant worries, but yet their worship and their faith repeatedly shines through because the rock, the fortress, the refuge in high tower they constantly seek is Christ himself, their redeemer, their cornerstone, marvelous in their eyes so that they can say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 
118. So the worship book of Jesus must never be neglected. We as Christians need to make it a daily part of our walk with Christ, reading it and seeing so much of Christ and the gospel in it. Now, finish with this. We have been saved under worship. Christ teaches this. This is our essential identity, purpose, understanding of salvation. We are to be worshipers. We're saved in order to worship the true and living God. And therefore, as we go each day into this year, we need to never forget worship is our highest and ultimate purpose because of who God is. But that worship is also an invincible purpose. It can never be taken away from us, and it's something we can never lose. That worship is also an omnipresent purpose. We have this purpose everywhere we can ever be. And then worship is a pervasive purpose. It is to pervade everything about our lives. So that, as 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether we eat or drink, and whatever we do, we would do all for the glory of God. 2021 doesn't have much promise or much hope that all of the wishes of the Los Angeles Times will ever be fulfilled, but it doesn't have much promise that perhaps our own wishes would be fulfilled. That our wishes can never be as significant fundamentally as God's design and purpose for us. No matter what trials and afflictions, no matter what circumstances may bring this coming year, what will give our lives meaning and significance, no matter what happens? It's to live the purpose for which Christ died to save us, to live in order to worship the true and living God. So may this be our committed purpose this year by the grace that God has given to us in Christ. Amen.